Product here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Curry on Barcelona will be taking place June 19th and 20th, a new and unusual non-profit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry. Curry on is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. For more information and to register, visit www.curry-on.org. And if you don't have plans for July and want to learn more about Scala, meet new people, and visit the Polish seaside at the same time, you may be interested in participating in Scala Wave. Scala Wave 2017 is the second edition of the annual Scala Conference for the Baltic Sea region. Last year's debut edition proved that the conference is becoming an interesting part of the Scala scene in that region. It's held in beautiful Donkspolen, and this year it lasts two days, the 7th and 8th of July. The first is a workshop day, and during that day there will be seven workshops and an open source hackathon. The second day consists of ten presentations, all focused on topics related to Scala programming. Tickets are now available, so make sure to visit scalawave.io to find out more and to register. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through 22nd in San Jose. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack. JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet Clojure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using Clojure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and register. BuzzConf is a non-profit, open-space, unconference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming-related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open, and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opened June 8th, so make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated as tickets tend to go fast. PWLConf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strangeloop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing networking systems to game engines. This conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or a recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Open F Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, Open F-Sharp features two days of F-Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers, and a unique opportunity to connect with the F-Sharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F-Sharp ecosystem. Tickets are currently on sale, and early bird pricing ends June 30th. For more information and to register, visit openfsharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington. 
with one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are CS professor Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Bird, inventor of Minikaren. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-lang.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are available, an early bird discount ends September 1st or until the first 100 tickets sell out. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. CodeMesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Marco Seltzer are already confirmed. Very early bird ticket sales will start on June 22nd, and I have been told they tend to go very fast. More details can be found at www.codemesh.io. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Ross Proctor, and this week we have with us Scott Washington, who's back after being on episode 66 last September. So... We've introduced you, we got you a rundown in your last episode, so for anybody who wants to get some more details and some background, we'll get that link in the show notes so they can go find that episode and listen, but it's been a while, you've got a new book coming out, and so I want to catch up and see what's coming up, what you've been up to, aside from the book, and dig into some of your book that's coming out with Pride Prague, so welcome, and thanks for talking with me, Scott. Oh, thanks very much, it's always a pleasure. So you got put reback on my radar. You're always circling around it with various talks <laughs> and other topics and appearances on other podcasts. I know I've caught you on a couple of episodes on Three Devs and a Maybe and some others, but you're always kind of circling around that radar. But with a new book being early access from PragePog about domain-driven design and F-Sharp, I figured it was time to get you back on, talk some more about it, what you've been up to, and dig into some of the things around this book. And I guess we'll just start from there. How did the book get started? Right. So the intersection of domain-driven design and functional programming has been something that's been dear to my heart for quite a long time. And in fact, the very first talk I ever did in public was on that exact topic. And so about eight months ago, nine months ago, Pragmatic Programmer Press called me up and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a book on this topic. And I said, yes, I'd love to because, you know, I've been wanting to do that for a while. And it's nice to have a publisher who will actually nag you to do it. I've been thinking about it for a long time, but with a publisher, they kind of nag you about it quite a lot. So that's good. And so we, I started writing it about six, seven months ago. And we're now in the the early access, the beta phase, where you can buy a kind of preview copy and see what's been written so far. About eight chapters been written so far, I think and I can get feedback and then hopefully in a couple of months the final version will be done and I think the launch date is in October or November sometime so that's what I've been doing for the last six months writing a book and I know I've either come across 
that talk or various talks and things on your blog and around the ecosystem. Again, you did the call on three devs and a maybe where you talked about trying to do some of this domain-driven design and using different paradigms. But F-sharp seems to be interesting and the various other ML languages as well, but F-sharp in your case, which is you start to encode these types and you can specifically say what's allowed, what's not, and explicitly document these kinds of ideas in the domain as opposed to just having this object that you may or may not have a domain object, but then you also start to creep into the manager factories and the other things. So how do you find F-sharp fitting with this at a very high level? Yeah, so the idea with the domain modeling in F-sharp or OCaml or Haskell or something is that you can represent a lot of the concepts in the domain purely with types without worrying about behavior. And you can actually capture quite a lot of the business logic just in the type system without writing any tests or anything. And what's particularly nice about languages like F-sharp is that it's very easy to read for a non-developer. As programming languages go, you can actually show the design of the various types that you're using. You could show them to somebody who's not a developer. They can probably, with a little bit of help, they can understand what you're talking about. So the types act as documentation and they also act as code and so you get this this great thing where the code and the documentation are always in sync because they're the same thing you know you don't have to worry about your uml diagrams getting out of sync with your code or anything like that and when this comes in and where we kind of left the last episode we talked to you was you kind of were talking about the formal mathematics versus the human side of software and one of the things that this seems nice is I'm guessing you're trying to strike that balance between the humanist side, making it so someone can understand this stuff while being formalist at the same time and saying, you say we have these three options. We have these three options. Let's specify these and document these. And if we get a fourth option, we know that that's covered or not. So how does that balance striking between those two sides of the very mathematics, formalism, programmatic making sure things are approvable and right, and the humanist side, which is the understanding. And as you said before we started the call, is not just are we proving ourselves right, but are we working to make sure we're doing the right thing? So let's start going down that route, and we'll dig out topics as we start to evolve some of these topics that you cover. Yeah, so you know, traditionally functional programming has been thought of as a kind of mathematical activity, or at least an academic thing. And there's a lot of emphasis on correctness and even in some languages, even trying to prove that your code is correct. And that's what I call, you know, doing the right thing, making sure the code is correct. But the the, the thing of the domain-driven design people and the agile people sort of in general, it's not about is the code correct, but not are you doing the right thing, but I, I should say for the functional programming is are you doing it right? And for the domain-driven design people, is are you doing the right thing? Are you going in the right direction? Correctness of the code is not the focal point. It's trying to understand the requirements, trying to make sure that what the business wants is reflected in the code accurately. And, you know, once it's reflected in the code accurately, then hopefully the rest of it goes very smoothly. But most software projects, in my opinion, they fail not because that your code couldn't be proved correct but because you didn't really understand what the business wanted. And maybe at the very beginning of the project you did, but after it's been maintained after five years, it starts deviating 
from the business. And to me, that's a much more serious problem. And ironically, I think that functional programming languages can actually do a better job of that than object-oriented programming languages because the, the languages tend to be very concise and they tend to be quite easy to read. And I think in a funny sort of way, as long as you don't try and get too technical, you know, with monads and functors and all that stuff, you can actually have code which is readable by the rest of the business and also by other developers. You can actually try and capture the domain in the code in a nice way. And you kind of touched on a little bit, and this is one of those avenues I want to dig down deeper because I came across the book Domain Driven Design. It sounded nice. There were these things where we would try to introduce these concepts that the business used, but sometimes they get changed. We switched terms as the discussion evolved and we didn't have one single term throughout the code base or we started having some of these other things that were the factory factories or the strategies or some of these other just object-oriented patterns when we're dealing with this in Java or C-sharp or whatever your object-oriented language of the day is. How do you continue to go down that route with the F-sharp? Is that something that stays pretty easy because you lean on the compiler? If you, you find if you change this term, it's easy to find everywhere you change that term. You said after five years, it starts to go out. How does that equate to using a type system that is a more ML type system that F-sharp has? Yeah, I mean, the type system, people say that the... First of all, F-sharp is obviously statically typed, so the compiler, you definitely can lean on the compiler. And you can lean on the compiler in C-sharp and Java as well, but I think in the ML languages and in Haskell, people really lean on the compiler. And so you really try and capture everything in the type system. And so if you change, again, that's one reason is the correctness reason, but the other reason is that if you change something, your code will break until you find all the places which have been broken by that change. I mean, a very simple example is having concepts, you know, domain concepts. Like in a business, they won't talk about strings and integers and floats. They'll talk about, you know, product codes and customer IDs and order quantities. And in a domain-driven model, you represent those things by types, which are called, you know, customer ID or order quantity. You actually create a type for each of these domain concepts. So that's great because you're now modeling the domain. You can totally do that in most object-oriented languages, but it's like 20, 30 lines to create one type or one class in something like C-sharp. And in, in languages like F-sharp, it's one line of code. So you can easily create hundreds of little specialized domain types that represent things in the domain, and the whole thing will fit on one page. And so it's just the convenience of being able to do this kind of stuff so easily and so quickly. and I think languages like F-sharp, they give you the benefit of a kind of dynamic language like Python, where you can really tweak things and play with things and interactively experiment with things. You get all those benefits, but then the output of that is something which is statically checked and something that you can really lean on the compiler once you've finished, unlike something like Python, where it's quite hard, you know, if you have a large code base, it's quite hard to know if you've actually broken anything without running all the unit tests and crossing your fingers, you know. And when you say this is one line, it's, this is essentially if I have a phone number, I may be representing it as a string. So I can just say my phone number is a type alias of type string, but I can't pass a string into something that says I expect a phone number. Or if I have a user ID or something else, I can specify that a user ID is an int or a string or a UUID, 
whatever it is. And it'll take that as long as I've explicitly converted it at the boundary of my code to that type. But I can't just say, well, here's a string. It fits into a phone number willy-nilly anywhere because I've now said that even though these are the same things at a higher level, they're not, right? Exactly. And the classic example is customer ID or, or a product ID or something, and they're represented by ints. And so you just say, okay, the customer ID is an int. But it's not an int because in integers, you can add them together, you can multiply them and so on. You can't add two customer IDs together. You can't multiply them. It doesn't make any sense to say that they're anything related to integers. You might represent them as an integer in your database or in your JSON string or whatever. But from a domain modeling point of view, they're not an integer. They're their own thing. And they have their own rules and their own behavior which in general has got nothing to do with them being integers. You know, Generally, they're pretty opaque. There's normally rules, validation rules about what can go inside them. But other than that, they don't have, often they don't have a lot of behavior. They're kind of sort of primitive types that you build other types out of. And this, this is one of the things. So you can see that by creating these types, you actually are modeling the main better than you would be if you were just using plain strings and ints and floats and so on. And I think that's, Another important thing that I know I've gotten confused on in the past is because I'm aliasing this type of ID or user ID or product ID to an int, a user ID is different than a product ID, which I get. And then there's also the, but it doesn't mean it gets every behavior that an int does, or it doesn't get every behavior that a string does, even though underneath it it's the same underlying type just for convenience and storage i still can't use a user id and as you said add these two things together so it gives me a little bit more abstraction from using it wrong and saying well if i've got an email address which under the covers is a string i can't just go and split that email address on an at sign i have to explicitly define that that is a valid operation for an email address correct absolutely and in languages like F-sharp, if something has a string representation, like an email, and something else has also has a string representation, like a phone number or something, the types are incompatible. So you can't accidentally compare them to each other, and you can't pass one in when you're expecting the other one. And you certainly can't do things like, you know, make it up a case or do anything like that. So definitely, the, by wrapping it in a type like that, you've encapsulated the knowledge about what's you don't really care when you're domain modeling you don't normally care about that whether it's a string or so on you only normally care about that when it's time to go outside the process and, and store it in a database or serialize it over the wire or something like that and the other nice thing about languages like f sharp is that the data is immutable so for example if you have an email address i mean email address is a good example because you want to validate it, you know, you might want to check that it has an at sign in it and it has certain symbols in it, whatever your validation rules are. And once you've done that validation and wrapped it in a special type called email, that is guaranteed to be immutable. So you never, ever have to check it again in your code. And one thing you see a lot of with languages where the default is to have mutable values, you always tend to write a little bit defensively. You're never sure that, you know, well, they might have validated it at this point, but maybe somebody's changed it since then, and I have to revalidate it here because I don't really trust it. And a classic example is whether it's null or not. You have to check if someone changes to be null or something happened to make it go null. 
In F-sharp, there are no nulls for, for user-defined types. And like I say, because it's immutable, you tend to have a lot less defensive programming. And that's it's a real one less thing you have to worry about when you're writing code. You can just focus on the domain logic and not have to focus on all this other sort of stuff that gets in the way, all the validation and stuff, which is kind of annoying. And from my cursory experience with a little bit of OCaml, seeing F-sharp, looking into Haskell a little bit and feeling around these F-sharp languages and definitely wanting to dig in deeper at some point into these things. But because you've wrapped this up as a type, if you start out with something that's an address and you say type address is an alias for a string under the covers to begin with, once I realize that my address needs to be a richer structure where it's now a sum or product uh, product type, I think, where you say it's actually got line one, line two, country, province, postal code kind of thing. I can take that string that's a string. I can build it into this other structure and it becomes an easier migration than if you were to try and do this in an object-oriented language because you've now got the structure that you've abstracted away that if you don't need those properties, you don't have to change that type. But if you do, you're very focused on knowing what things you can do with it. Is that accurate from my outside view? Yes. I mean, in functional languages, you separate the behavior from the data structure, and which is, of course, the exact opposite from object-oriented programming. And so you just basically, you start by, in terms of development, you typically start by creating the definition of the data structure, the type, and then you add functions basically as needed every time you want to do something. And the data structure, it depends on how you do it. You can make the data structure completely opaque or you can expose the properties. It depends on how publicly visible you want your data structure to be. But yeah, it's, I think it's a lot easier to refactor in my experience because of the immutability and because each function transforms the data. You know, you pass in a piece of data and you get another piece of data out. And so there's this model of every function is a transform, the data transformation function. And you tend not to have these things where, like in in an object-oriented model, you often have things where it mutates something inside the object. The function, the method doesn't actually return anything. These are all kind of black boxes. And those kinds of things can be quite hard to refactor because there's so much mutable state of it. It's very hard to tear them apart without breaking the rest of the code. And like I say, in functional programming, you tend to be the model from the very beginning is this model of composing smaller things. You make bigger types by composing smaller types and you make bigger functions by composing smaller functions. So it's built into the whole design principle. I mean, basically the fundamental design principle of functional programming is you build things by composing them. And the flip side of that is you can pull things apart by decomposing them. You know, if your function is too big, it's really easy to write it as two smaller functions and glue them together to make the bigger function. So the whole thing of refactoring and decomposing things into smaller parts as you learn more about it, I think functional programming is actually a very compatible approach for that way of working. And then you mentioned the C word, composition. Mm-hmm. When you talk about these types and you talk about functional programming and composition, trying to marry that with domain modeling. I've seen a lot of examples where if you have the standard blog comment where you've got an idea on a blog and you've got an idea on a comment and you've got an idea on a user 
or you've got some sort of titles or something that's across the same where you can say, I can expect a structure and I can map over this and pull out a specific field and then this field. And I believe you've written an article about it of generic names being better because if you're tied to an address, that's not as good as if you're just tied to something with a title. How does that fit in with the domain-driven design? Because that's an important concept in functional programming is this concept of composition and abstraction to only the layer of level that you need. But when you start making the humanistic side that says, well, I actually have to understand this, how does that balance in with the, well, I'm breaking down these small Lego pieces, these small puzzle pieces that I can put together in different forms, but now I can iterate over anything that has a title and pull the title out for a summary. How does that balance and those two go with the domain-driven design, and how do those two things fit in together? Yeah, that's an interesting thing about abstraction versus concreteness. I think when you're working with normal people, (laughs) normal people like very concrete examples and very concrete designs, and I would say that abstraction is a hard thing for most people to understand. And even for developers, you know, the introduction of generics in C-sharp and Java has been quite a big thing. And the kind of abstraction that you get in functional programming is a level above that and sometimes three or four levels above that. And so what I tend to do is separate the kind of library code versus the the code that models the domain. And the code that models the domain tends to be very concrete and very explicit about how everything works. And then the kind of more abstract code, that's the kind of thing that would live in a library. You might have some generic code that does certain kinds of things. That's not really, because it's generic and because it's abstract, it's not really domain-specific code. So by definition, if it's too abstract, it's not applicable. You know, It's not been designed for this particular domain. It works on many, many domains, and that's great. You're getting code reuse, but then that's different from the domain code. So I think it's quite common to have libraries which can be quite abstract, and then your, your kind of front-end code, as it were, or your domain-specific code is very concrete and very explicit. And they can play well together. That's the nice thing. You basically, the concrete code is the code that you show to people. <laughs> and the abstract code, especially the implementation of that stuff, can be quite hairy. You don't really show that to other people if you can avoid it because it's <laughs> can be quite tricky to implement sometimes. And I think it's that eventually you're going to use the abstract code. And when you're trying to make this readable, and things like that. So if you're trying to do a git name, is this one of those kind of point-free functions or function aliases to something that's a map over a type that has a name? And so you give it a more concrete name just as an alias. So when you say git name given a user, that it reads more domain-specific, but under the covers, that's just an alias for this abstract stuff? Or And it's some of that balance of when we think about this and we're trying to be expressive, how do you balance that expressive for this specific instance versus the generic that gets reusable. Yeah, I mean, from the design point of view, I think you don't need abstraction. I think design should be very concrete. So your example of getting a name from a user, that, from the design point of view, that is the design. You want to have something that gets the name from a user. And of course, to be honest, the businesses tend not to think at that level. They think about something like applying a payment to an invoice or shipping an order to a postal address or something, you know, much more high-level business-oriented functions. I think in the actual nitty-gritty details of how that actually works, 
doesn't need to be part of the sort of high-level design, the business-oriented design. You know, you can then you hand this off to a, a programmer and you say, I need a function that will take an invoice and apply a, a payment to it and give me an invoice, which is now a paid invoice rather than an unpaid invoice. That's the kind of level that I'm talking about in terms of design. Now, when you come to implement that, that's when you can start using the abstraction and you can say, well, actually, well, I have three or four different things and they all have the same need and let me write a generic function that will do that for me so I don't have to write it three times and so on and so forth. And that's, I mean, it's this very similar to what you do in object-oriented design as well, where you'd start with concrete classes and you might create a base class based on similarities between them and so on. But, you know, in functional modeling, there is no base class. There's just types. So you, you tend not to have things like a base class is not a real thing in the domain. You know, in object-oriented programming, you tend to have a lot of things, base classes, if you have inheritance and you have manager classes and strategy classes and proxy classes and stuff. You tend not to have that stuff in functional programming so much because a lot of those things you just aren't relevant to how you do functional design. And I guess to extrapolate it out at the domain level is you might have an asset and do you design that asset as a sum type where it can be any one of these n number of things and so you give that permutation there or do you do the asset more as the abstract interface uh, the ml term for it's going away but yeah a generic type yeah versus the data versus the type kind of class where you can say an asset has inherently a value operation that if you're going to have an asset you're going to have this contract around an asset so where does that i guess if we're looking at the domain level with that abstraction yeah you can do it both ways you can focus in a funny sort of way you can focus just on the behavior or the processes that work on an asset without actually defining what the asset actually is you could totally use generic types that way and say i have something which is an asset i don't care what it is but i do know there's some way of combining two of them to make a new one and I do know there's a way of putting a price on it or printing it out or something. You can come up with all the different business functions that work with this thing without ever defining what the thing is. And that's quite nice. That's totally one way of doing it as well. So there's a lot of flexibility. And I mean the nice thing about the type oriented approach is that you have a something called you know a generic asset. And you can still compose these functions together. So, I mean, a classic example is if you have some way of combining two of them to make another one of the same type, that's a very standard concept in functional programming, which is the monoid. And, you know, it turns out that kind of thing pops up all the time in business modeling, where you have two products and you combine them to make a bigger product. Or you have two orders and you combine them to make a compound order or something like that. That kind of thing does happen. And so... You can define these functions that do these business processes without even knowing what an order is or what a product is. You just you can say that there's there's a way of combining them to make another one, and you can actually do quite a lot of modeling at that level without knowing anything about what the actual type is. Absolutely, yeah. And then kind of transitioning, if you've been writing eight chapters of this book and you've been exploring this since your first talk, but there's the idea of giving a talk to people, putting some blog posts out, being on a podcast, but now you've got this and you've got it in written form, which is a different medium of communication versus spoken word, where you can express something and I can answer you back. 
you have to write this out and hopefully make it clear to the consumers. What have you found in that process that's helped solidify your thoughts? I know you've done a lot of blog posts. You still get comments back on that. So there's a little bit of practice there, but you're still getting an easier feedback track and mechanism when you're going to putting it down in a book and hopefully for a broader audience who may not even come across F sharp for fun and profit. What are some of those things that have helped solidify what in your head may be that hard earned knowledge that has now just become second nature that you're like, I need to step back. I need to think about this. There's a lot of baggage that comes with this that we might inherently in the functional programming world or in the F sharp world specifically think about. That's a very good question. This is quite an unusual topic. And so there isn't a lot really to guide me on doing this. So, you know, part of me is sort of using the knowledge that I've had from many years of just doing software design in general, object oriented design and other kinds of design and just applying those same principles. I think the principles don't change. You know, the concept of listening to people, understanding what they want, decomposing a design into smaller parts. I mean, these are fundamental principles that have been around forever. But just documenting how you would apply that to functional programming approach. So now I've got lots of good feedback from people. And I mean, I'm curious to see what kind of feedback I get for this, because literally, this is kind of a new area, and I'm not claiming that I know all the answers. So I think this is the kind of thing where, as you know, I get it down on paper, and then hopefully some of these concepts will evolve over time as more people become more familiar with them. And I'd, I'd be looking forward to that. And just in you trying to take some of these ideas and distill it down into another medium, what have you found that I guess has surprised you just yourself when you're trying to say, I've kind of wrote, written about some of this stuff in blog posts, but now that I'm writing a whole book and a whole idea and I have to go deeper than just a five-post series on this thing, what are some of those things that you're starting to come around to identify either as, oh, this is a fundamental principle, I see how this applies overall, and I've been able to distill it down and I've got a new picture on it because now I see how this is all the same thing or... I didn't realize this. I had this intuition, but now trying to explain it, it forced me to get a little bit better picture of this because, as you said, this is kind of sort of done, but people don't talk about it in that way. People talk about the expressivity of the type system to solve your problem, but not that I'm exactly doing it as a business user would talk about. So what are some of those things that, as you've done this, have been your learnings in the past six months of starting to write this book? Yeah, it's writing books is hard. <laughs> that's That's the first learning. One of the problems is trying to put things in the right order. There's a lot of concepts that are very interrelated, and which concept should you talk about first? Because to talk about this concept, you might need this other concept, and that second concept might need a third concept. And trying to organize, I mean, I think that's one of the big differences between a book and a blog post or talks, is you, a book has to have a coherent kind of narrative that develops over a couple of hundred pages. And that's the hardest part for me is, is trying to keep the narrative building over time and not having people get confused because you've introduced something and you haven't explained it properly. I should just point out that this book is only going to be a couple of hundred pages long, I think 250 pages or so. If I had my own way, the book would probably be about a thousand pages long because I'd like to explain everything in great detail. So this book is really just meant to be a sort of taster. 
it can't really cover all the things that you could say on this topic. It's really hopefully just to introduce people to some of the concepts and leave them maybe probably wanting more and maybe we can have, you know, a sequel later on. But according to the publisher, I mean, I know they're probably right, is that, you know, most people are not going to read thousand-page books on an obscure topic like this. So I'm just going to try and keep it as basically the bare essentials and what you need to know to sort of get started in this whole area. And I'm assuming that a lot of people are interested. They're interested in the concepts, but they don't necessarily have the background. So I'm going to be explaining in the book, I'll explain a lot of things from scratch. I'll explain domain-driven design, and I'll also be explaining functional programming and F-sharp. So it really does cover quite a lot of bases all in one short book. So hopefully I'll make it make sense for everybody. So it is a bit of a challenge. And because you touch on it, so the audience is really for anybody. And if they're thinking about this, they think this is nice, but hey, I don't I don't have an F-sharp background, much less any ML language family background, or I have no idea what domain-driven design is specifically, or things like that. You start from scratch on all this stuff then. And yes, I do. I want to make something that's approachable for everyone, and I like to err on the side of explaining things because there's so many books tend to assume that you know everything already and they dive into the deep end and that's one piece of feedback that I've got a lot people appreciate when I in my blog posts is I do tend to not assume that people have that much background and I try to explain things from scratch so that people don't feel left out I mean my my worst fear is that people read something I've written and they say I can't understand a word of this it goes way too quickly and they've just lost me. And I, that's that's been my worst thing. I really don't want to have people have that experience. I'd rather people feel that they can say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I never thought about it that way before and get a positive experience from reading it. And, of course, that means that some people who, who are experts already know this stuff. And that's fine because that's not who the book's really targeted for. And I guess if the people who are experts and already know this, they can read the book, breeze through it and find out that this is another reference that they can use to help sell things because they say, well, you know what? Here's another way of phrasing it. So it sounds like that's a good way for even experts to help broach the subject is doesn't matter how expert you are. A, you'll probably have a new view of something because someone's got a different thought, which might inform your thoughts, but it also gives you the opportunity to help sell it in different ways, depending on who needs what kind of view, right? Yeah. And I think in general, Demystifying functional programming is kind of one of my personal goals. There's so much, I don't know, fear and worry about it. It sounds so complicated and it sounds scary. And if I can get people to not think that, that would be a great start. And I think there's a lot of other people in the functional programming community who feel the same way. And there's, first of all, I mean, there's many, many reasons. First of all, I do want to see functional programming succeed. Secondly, I think domain-driven design is actually a great way for people to write code because it creates better software and it's less stressful for the developers when you don't have to keep changing things all the time. And thirdly, for purely selfish reasons, I'd like to get jobs writing this kind of stuff. And the more people who do this, the more likely I am (laughs) to get a job doing it. So it's kind of win-win for everybody, I think. And as you get that and you mentioned that and you try to make functional programming distilled in your time since you've given the talks you've written the blog posts 
you've talked on podcasts, you've answered people's questions from all your explanations. What are some of those things that you found that are probably the things that mystify or throw off or preclude people the most that are those easiest wins for someone to help make a sale on functional programming that says, if we've got some coworkers, we've got some other people that we want to help sell at least some of the ideas from, whether or not it's go full-fledged into a functional programming language or move it back and let it influence your thoughts slowly in whatever language you're doing. What are some of those things that you found from feedback from everything that you've done that are probably the topics that we should be focused on demystifying first? Because I know you don't like the M word and some of those (laughs) other, the MFA, let's just put all those in the same category. But if we're going to start and if you're going to encourage people, what have you found sells the best, at least as a starting point? Well, I think this domain modeling has actually been a very useful as a way of demystifying because I think a lot of developers you know obviously had experience trying to capture a domain using classes and, and so on and so when I can show people well here's I've got the domain captured and it's just a couple of pages of code and I can guarantee certain business rules are also captured in the thing when people see that I mean to be honest that's technically nothing to do with functional programming per se it's just the benefit of the, the functional kind of type system but when people see that, they get quite excited and they realize it kind of can actually be quite useful to them. And again, I haven't mentioned monads or anything in there. So the most feedback, I think, for getting people interested in functional programming is to focus on practical things rather than sort of academic things. So if you can show people that they can write a lot less code and that the code they do write is more reliable and they don't have to spend as much time writing tests, you know, all it basically, you know, all the stuff that you want as a developer in any language, if you can show people they get those benefits, then most people are pretty open to that. And that's basically the, you know, the feedback that I've got on the way that I approach things. And I think that really is the best way to get people on your side is to, to show them concrete benefits rather than kind of dazzle them with theory, you know. Yeah. And. It's one of those things, I don't know how the audience is spread out. I know me personally, I'm not in functional programming day to day. And making that sell without coming across as the proverbial smug lisp the Haskell academic that's in the White Tower, whatever these preconceptions are about these things and any specific language that someone may have when you say functional programming, it's no there are certain things that are applicable, as you said. There are the underlying fundamental principles there, and here's how they are useful, whether it's immutability or small functions or small methods, but they're really functions because they are mathematical functions. What goes in is what goes out. You're not mutating stuff. You're not changing stuff. You're not doing as many side effects. Even if you're in object-oriented, you can say, I get you can think a static method on a Java or C object is a code smell, but let's just look at this and see how this solves it and makes it easier to test or whatever. And that's those kinds of things that I think to help sell this, as you said, because we probably all want to be doing this to some level or another and make sure we have job security and being able to go and pick our favorite language, whatever that may be making sure those ideas spread to whatever extent makes our lives easier and will make other people's lives easier if we can sell it right. 
Yeah, and I mean, all these things, like I say, as developers, we just want to have fun, <laughs> mostly. I mean, writing code that's relatively bug-free, that doesn't have weird bugs in it six months later, that's what most developers want. And I mean, which language you use, or whether it's OO or functional, whatever, a lot of that's sort of beside the point, really, to do with why we program in the first place. And so in my experience, you know, I like functional programming because I think it actually delivers those benefits. It's a lot of fun to program and I don't have to go back and rework stuff that I wrote last year because something changed somewhere, you know. So from my point of view, that's one of the reasons we're doing it. But I mean, functional programming for the sake of functional programming and saying that everyone else is wrong and I'm right. Yeah, I don't think that's a very helpful approach at all. You've got to follow what people like to do. and and encourage people to do the stuff that resonates with them. And I think as we've been talking about, we talk about the functional programming and making sure it's easier to maintain, it's easier to think about, rationalize about, know what's going on, being able to focus in and only work with a small part of the code without worrying about, am I going to break something else here? Those were all good. And I think based off talking with this book and something that we don't also focus on that you're starting to bring online is there's also that, as you said, we might be building it right and we know it's working. But folding in the domain-driven design to the functional programming also says, yeah, but we're not going to have to go redo it in three months, six months, a year, because we realize that we've been working as long as we have and we didn't understand the requirements because we were misinterpreting that. So we built the wrong thing because we were heads down as well. So exactly, I see where that good fit is that says, sure, we've been so focused on proving it right and making sure it works that, yes, it works, but it doesn't actually deliver any of the business value out there when it comes to our jobs. Because we're not just in our sandboxes with our breakable toys that we can take apart and put back together all we want on our own. We've actually got to deliver money to the business so we actually continue to have a job and the business <laughs> exists. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we mustn't forget that our job is to, you know, it's always fun to be messing around with stuff, but it's also important to live a value so that we do get a paycheck. Yeah, it's, that's a tough one. I learned this the hard way. When I was younger, I was involved in a startup and we spent a lot of time and a lot of money building a product that nobody wanted. And the product was great. We had a fantastic team and, you know, it was very good code. And, you know, we do test-driven development and everything was great, except that nobody actually bought it. <laughs> that was the, the, the slight flaw in the whole business model. And I really learned a lot from that about how not to do that. And ever since then, I've been very, very big on doing usability testing, doing user experience design getting the end users, whoever's going to be using it, getting them involved very, very early in the process and making sure they actually care about what you're delivering. And so as a result, I think that I've learned a lot about how to deliver something useful. And it's also more fun because there's nothing more heartbreaking than putting your soul into something and then everyone hates it after you've delivered it, even though you've written the coolest code, you know. So I don't really want to have that experience again. And um, so I think a lot of the techniques that people have around delivering high-value products, they're very valuable. And, that, and that's completely orthogonal to which programming language you use, you know, or which design tools you use. 
just listening to the customer and paying attention to what they want is basically the most important thing you can do, I think, as a programmer. And on that note, is there anything else that we haven't covered? Because there's a few things I want to get in, and we'll continue to plug your book and give a review of what people can look for, what people can find, what to expect in a little more detail. But is there anything else that we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up at this point after that piece of great advice? No, I think I'm happy with everything I said. I can't think of anything obvious that I'd like to say right now. Okay, and we've kind of touched and danced around the high-level overview of this book, but you mentioned right now that at this point, as we're talking and soon to be recording and publishing, you've got eight chapters done so far. It'll be about a 250-page book. Hopefully, October, if all goes well. Early access, so there's review. What else should people know about the book? Because we mentioned it was Prague Prague. We'll get a link to the show notes so people can find it and start to order it and get the early access. But is there anything else that we should give a better overview about where that goes down to? How many of those are introduction to domain and F sharp and anything else that we have missed specifically about the book? I don't. The book sort of follows what I've been saying. I mean, the book is sort of in three parts. The first part is the kind of high level listening to the customer part and trying to capture that which is the domain-driven design part. And then the second part is how do you then model the domain using the type system. And then the third part is how do you then implement that design using functional principles like composition and functional error handling and so on and so forth. And that's where I do actually mention the M word, unfortunately. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, it would be fantastic if people would check it out and give me feedback. It's kind of an experiment. It's, it, like I say, it's interesting. It's covering three different topics in one book. And I think the topics are very closely related. But I think it's kind of an experiment. I think uh, it's one of the first books which has, has done this. And so, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm very hopeful that, it'll, that people will find it useful. And I don't know if it's worth teasing or not or if it makes sense in light of the larger book, but is there one kind of running domain that you're using as an example? Do you create this fictional domain product that you're going to be building and you're showing examples and talking about how you're going back and forth to figure out and flesh out the domain and make sure you understand it and then how you translate that into starting to do some F-sharp and actually build a larger piece or subset of that problem out and show the the F-sharp interacting with that, or is this a bunch of different smaller pieces that say, well, we're going to fit here, and we're going to fit here? Start off with one domain, which is like an order-taking system. Just a classic, you know, you've got an order, and it's got a bunch of products, and you need to validate it. And so I start off at the high level, and then I drill down into that into one single workflow, which is just the very thing of taking an order form and validating it and transforming it in a couple of ways. And even that one simple workflow, which has got just two or three stages in it, and I kind of really dive into that and model that, you know, over like 50 pages. <laughs> so, yeah, the first part of the book starts off with a kind of high-level domain, and then, I, like I say, I just focus on one little piece and drill down into it. And I think the principles that are demonstrated obviously can apply to any domain, but I just really want to make sure, again, that there's no unanswered questions, that by focusing on this one thing and going into detail, 
hopefully people can see that that's relevant for the rest of it. I don't want to kind of try and cover too much too thinly. But once you get the principles for one piece, the same principles apply everywhere else, I think. And that's what I was wondering. I know some books say, well, to show you the principles, I haven't found a good domain to explain that in. That's one domain, so I have to pick three different domains. So these principles are here versus these principles are here versus these other ones are yeah. in C. But you managed to find one domain that gives a better coherent story across the thing so people can start to understand fractally, I guess, across all the different iterations and depths and layers of the application, how the domain applies. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, even something very simple like just processing an order form, if you dive into it, like doing validation and uh, doing error handling, doing IO, each of these is like I've got a whole chapter just on that one topic. Because a lot of this is new to people, the functional approach to doing IO or the functional approach to doing error handling is very new. So I'm going to assume that people are not familiar with it and I'm going to kind of explain it from the very beginning. And so, yeah, that's basically it. It's going to be the same piece of workflow iterated over with getting more and more complex as I go through the book. And probably like every other simple problem in software, you realize there's a lot more depth when you just say, oh, yeah, we're going to just process an order. That's that's simple, right? And then you actually start to get in. You're like, well, nope, there's a whole infinite number of subdomains in here if we want to go and explore yeah. those. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I, I did this. You mentioned it, I think, in passing. I did this talk called 13 Ways of Looking at a Turtle. And that was the Turtle Graphics API, which is really simple. It's just move forwards and, and turn left and right. And you can take that same, that you know, Literally, that could just be a couple of lines of code. But by the time I finished that talk, you know, by the time you get to the 13th way or the 12th way, you've got, you know, event sourcing and you've got free monads and you've got capability-based designs. You can do an incredible amount of complexity, even on a very simple uh, model. And, and I think it's good because it's important. Sometimes the domains are so complicated that you, you can't even understand what the domain is before you even dive into the code. So I think it's always good in my book and also in my turtle talk to have a domain which is so simple that you basically understand it without even having to explain it because everyone's bought something at Amazon. They know how an order processing system works, you know. So, yeah, that's why I like to pick domains where you don't really have to explain them because they're they're so obvious. And so we're coming up at the end of time, but... We've got your book out there. We've mentioned a couple of your talks. We've referenced F-Sharp for Fun and Profit, your blog, and we'll call it out explicitly by name again, and we'll get that in the show notes. Is there any other upcoming appearances? Are you elaborating on this? Are you pretty much heads down and you're not doing any conferences or other appearances because you're cranking out the book? Are you juggling all this stuff together? What should people be looking forward for you in the next few months? I did... (laughs) I did accidentally sign up for quite a lot of conferences. I'm going to NDC Oslo next week, and then I am going to NDC Sydney in Australia in August. And there's a conference that I do want to plug, which is called Open F Sharp. It's in San Francisco at the end of September, I think the 28th of September. It's the first West Coast F Sharp conference ever. And so anyone who is in the San Francisco area or the Bay Area and they're interested in functional programming, come along to that conference. You can just Google for OpenF Sharp and you'll find it. 
and I'll be talking there and there'll be a lot of really cool people talking there and that's a conference I can highly recommend going to. And then at the same time, I will be trying to finish up the book. So yeah, I'll be juggling quite a few things at the same time. And we'll get links to the conferences and for anybody going to those, they can look for you there and, or if they can't make it, look for the videos at the NDC ones at least, because I know they do a pretty good job about getting those videos out. Not sure about Open F Sharp because this is the first year for it. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But I'm sure you'll publish your slides nonetheless. So keep an eye out for that stuff. The NDC conference, the videos, they do a really good job with recording the videos. And they're all free online on Vimeo and on YouTube. And there's like hundreds and hundreds of talks. So the, yeah, you can definitely get a complete programming education just by looking at videos from the NDC conferences. I highly recommend if you can go, I highly recommend it. But if you can't, then yeah, the videos are great. And they keep adding more conferences over the years as well. They do. <laughs> They're now up to, I think they've got three big ones and they probably have some small ones too. I don't know. And we mentioned your Twitter where you're pretty quiet. You don't put out a lot of noise. So you get a lot of signal when you do tweet on yep. this stuff. Uh, we've mentioned yep. sharp for front of profit. We mentioned your book to go. Prague Prog, get your copy, get your early review, start getting some feedback if you want it. Is there anything else that people should find you at online? No, I could say I'm pretty low-key on social media. It's a big time suck. I could easily spend all day <laughs> on Twitter. So I deliberately try and cut that out and focus on doing other things instead. Okay, so we'll get the links to places to find you in the show notes as well. So people can come back to the show notes if they are driving working in the yard, doing whatever they're doing as they listen to this at their desk and they just yeah. want to pull it up in a browser on the desktop. So they can go find the links in the show notes. Yeah. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Scott, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Nice to get some of these ideas elaborated and more pieces of the puzzle fit in and starting to see better from not being in the stuff day to day, how the different things are playing together between domain-driven design and building domains and being expressive and folding that into the ML languages and using types and fitting this all in together to give a better picture of where this is. So when the time comes that I start to at least, A, put the principles together, and B, if the time comes for me to start doing and working in some of these languages, I've got the good ideas and resources set. So thanks for taking your time to join me today and look forward to your book when it comes out, gets complete, and We'll probably be getting an early copy of it myself. So thanks for taking your time and talking to me today. Well, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.